Hello, welcome to the View From The Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode, I catch up with the effervescent psychologist, Professor Neve Stack from the University of Limerick. Neve is a well-respected worker in the field of developmental psychology and has a particular interest in how to support those students who are sometimes referred to as more able. In our conversation, we talk about the difference between some of the terms you may have heard in the past, including more able, gifted or talented, or simply high attaining students. How should these students be supported in schools and what can teachers do to help them make the most of their tenure in full-time education? It's time to find out. So without further ado, let's hear Neve's view from the lab. Hello Neve, welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. It's great to have you on this afternoon. Lovely to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Andy. Not a problem. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with some history. I like to, to find out a bit about background about my lovely guests and see where you know their educational world uh, or how it develops. Um, and what I wanted to ask you first was, um, or is, what, was it always your dream or your destination to become a psychologist? Was it something that um, uh, inspired you from a very young age or was it something that, that developed later? Can you tell me a bit about that? So I suppose when I was in secondary school, like most people in secondary school, you're trying to choose what your options are going to be or what the university courses that you want to do are. Um, and I've always been a big reader, loved reading, loved books, always had a real passion for that. Um, and I thought what I wanted to do was a degree in English and be a writer. Um, but I chickened out, Andy, is the actual reality of it. I didn't believe in myself enough. I thought, no, I won't get the points that I need to do that and I won't be able to do it because it was English at Trinity. And the funny thing was, I did get the points, but that's by the by. So the message there is do believe in yourself. But I think it's led me on a good path anyways. So I moved when I was doing my university choices, I moved it down the list and put psychology up at the top of the list. And psychology was something that I was vaguely aware of, wouldn't have done as a secondary school subject, but thought, doesn't that sound interesting? And it was a particular course that I was interested in. So it was the applied psychology course in the University of Ulster because I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. Um, And so I thought, well, their applied course allowed for a third year placement. And I thought, well, if I go do that course and they send me on placement, well then maybe I'll figure out what I wanted to do. And I thought maybe that I wanted to do something along the lines of educational psychology, but I wasn't sure. And I thought that would help me figure it out. So off I toppled up to Belfast at the other end of the country from me in the south of Ireland and went on the course. And the course, the program is a really, really great program. And it's very applied and it's focused the whole way through, not just in the third year when you go on placement. So it really gives you a taste of not just what the theory and research about psychology are about, but how you actually take that out into practice. And I think that has been something that has influenced my whole career, that idea of how you make those links between what happens in the lab, as we're talking about today, and then how you make that useful for people out in society. So it was a great course like that. And then on my third year in placement, I am everybody, and I knew that I was interested in children and childhood and all of those kind of things. Wasn't sure that I still wanted to be an educational psychologist because I knew more about what they did and I didn't know if that's what I wanted to do. A lot about testing and things like that. And I thought, mm, I'm not sure that's what I want to do. But there was a one placement in Great Oxford Street that everybody on my course wanted because you got to work in, in, the, in the hospital, in the clinics. And of course there was, I can't remember, maybe 150 on the course. And only one place for that. And so when I got sent to Glasgow, I have to admit, I was like, oh, okay. Well, that wasn't quite what I planned. And I got sent to a university to work as a research assistant for that year. And actually, it turned out to be defining in my career. So I worked with two great guys, uh, Jim McKechnie and Sandy Hobbs. And they really treated me as a colleague for the year. 
And I discovered that I actually love standing up in front of a class. I love talking to people about psychology. I love research. I love going out to schools and doing stuff. Um, and then I came back, finished my degree, and Jim and Sandy invited me back for a PhD. And that was, again, they treated me very much like a peer for my PhD rather than a student, gave me all kinds of teaching opportunities, all kinds of conference opportunities. And by the time I came out of the PhD, I was firmly embedded in academia and psychology. And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, they say it's history. You won't say how many years that's been. <laughs> yeah, well, um, so you're obviously inspired to, to be then. I was going to ask you, because I've seen you, you speak in real life in, in 3D, and you talked a lot about your, your, your background in terms of coming from a teaching family. And this is a, a podcast that is linked, linked to teaching, linked to science teaching. Um, I was going to say, what was it what are the advantages or maybe disadvantages of growing up in a in a in a in with parents who were they were both teachers is that correct no my dad is a teacher and my sister is a or my teacher my sister is a teacher i almost couldn't get the grammar there they'd be horrified as teachers about that but so they have two teachers in the family but i suppose it was growing up not just in a teaching family but within a family that um, really promoted education and the power of education so um, my dad was the first of his family to go to university in that. And my parents, both my parents felt very strongly about the power of education. And they were both, we don't mind what you do, but you're going to go to university and figure out what you want to do. And education is the way into you know, your future in that. And they were very, very supportive about us in terms of the kind of pathways we wanted to do. And we've all gone very different pathways. But for me, and particularly now, because a lot of the work I do or the work I've done over recent years has been in areas of social deprivation and seeing just how education, formal and informal, has the power to change lives. And we have a great responsibility then as educators to make sure that that's accessible to everybody. So I think being around teachers uh, has been important, but also being around people who really believe in education and what it can achieve, not just as something or someplace you go to and it's kind of rites of passage, but what it can actually lead you on to. I think the other thing that they all they gave me too was um, a love of books, a love of reading, a curiosity about the world, um, a curiosity about people. And also, my dad spent most of his life giving out about educational psychologists. Uh, so I learned how to defend my discipline and also how to, to really think about how we communicate psychology to teachers and to education so that it's not seen as something that's distant and up in an ivory tower, but something that's practical and useful within a classroom. So you are um, you, you specialise in developmental psychology now. To a a layman, what is I've got my own perception what what I think developmental psychology might mean. What how do you define developmental psychology? If there is an easy way to kind of express what your area of study is. Yeah. So for the field in a in a large sense, we think of it now as more than developmental psychology. We think about a lifespan development. So we're really talking even pre-birth kind of things that are happening when uh, we're born and during the prenatal period and even prior to that and how these things impact our growth and development across the lifespan right up until death so it's the whole way through my particular area of interest in terms of developmental um, psychology is around early childhood and childhood and adolescence i kind of stopped then because it's a very broad sense of knowing across the whole spectrum of life but for me developmental psychology is about how do we best support people through all the transitions that they're going to go through and in the context in which they are? Because each person is unique. My grandmother used to say, you're all unique to me and others, but it's true. Even within the same families, you have different experiences. I had a very different experience of my parents as the youngest child of four. 
my my siblings are always saying I had the easy ride because they'd broken them in for me. You know, so even within the same family, we're experiencing development in different ways. And thinking about how we best support that for everybody is, is the purpose of developmental psychology for me. And that's not just in school, but it's within the family, within society. And thinking about when it's not going according to plan for one reason or another, how do we A, acknowledge, value, diversity within development? Because we are afraid of difference as a society. So how do we help everyone accept and value diversity as a thing, not say, oh, we need to be sympathetic and help in these ways, but actually value diversity and see things as just different, not less or more, just different. And how do we begin to think about a classroom and what is an inclusive classroom and what does an inclusive classroom look like? Not just in terms of ticking boxes, but in actually meaningful ways. I think, um, and I was reading recently about obviously the importance of early years education and um, it's hard to describe this graph uh, when I'm on a podcast, which people are listening to, but it showed basically that, you know, the differences at age five just keep on growing wider and wider and wider as they, as, as the children go through school, um, which is obviously a bit uh, depressing in a sense that, you know, it's very hard to close those gaps or change those uh, trajectories. So when you're thinking about early years education, do you kind of think, um, I mean, is there, again, is there an official definition? Does it kind of, to use it, finish at seven and then you move on to the next stage or... Um, and are there any things that you've seen that have really helped kind of close those gaps at all in your research? Well, in terms of developmental psychology, there's a large push for a number of years about the pre-fives and the importance of paying attention to the pre-fives and what a strong foundation it can provide. And to a large degree, there's something of merit within that because there's just such a spurt of development in the pre-five. There's so much going on at that time in terms of brain development, in terms of physical development, in terms of even motor development and how you engage with your world. So there is a lot going on in there. But and economists have talked about it. One of the reasons there's been a push in relation to this isn't about psychology. It's about economists saying, well, if you invest in the pre-fives, then you don't have to invest later because these people are more resilient. And you have lots of programs like Head Start in the US that really invested in these pre the pre-five interventions to try and support families and um, particularly families in poverty and to try and build resilience within those kids. And that's all good work. But what the research shows more moving forward is it's not the only period of sensitivity. It's not a critical period in the way we thought about it before. It's, it's a period of sensitivity. Yes, if we do good work, then it does have bear fruits, but it has to be maintained. One of the effects you see, for example, in the Head Start programs is they did these interventions. They showed a really positive impact of doing the interventions, but you can't then put these young kids back into the societal problems. We have to fix the societal problems, not just try and do these kind of, well, I'm going to put a sticky tape here and hope that it lasts them through their life. You can't give a child a really great experience for the first five years and then put them into difficult situations. We have to deal with the bigger challenges in society too. We also know that periods like adolescence are hugely important. Again, transitions we go through in our 30s and 40s, again, are important in our development. So it's not the only period that's important. It is an important period. We do need to think about it in the foundations. But I also think we need to think about it in terms of we can't make children giving interventions in the pre-five is not like building a child a suit of armor and saying, right, that's you sorted. It doesn't matter what life throws at you. We've given you the suit of armor. You're now resilient to everything. If the individual can only be responsible for so much. We can't say we've given you resilience now. That's the magic pill. That's the magic ticket. You're going to be fine through life. It will help you. You will have strategies. You will be more resilient. But we need to make sure that we're not asking them to be resilient against an impossible wave. 
So when you're thinking about, obviously, obviously the child is saying you can give them these, um, uh, I guess, techniques or, or, or ways of thinking about the world, but unless they're in a community that is also supportive and a network that is also supportive, you're, you know, you, you can only do so much in a sense that um, there's other things that go, you know, could go wrong in, in life along, along the way, as you say. And if you haven't got a, a good network in, in the sense that that can cause you problems late, later in life. And I guess, um, you know, that, that is the big challenge uh, throughout throughout life, I suppose, not just in the obviously educational. Um, yeah. So, for example, you know, you'll have nurture programs, nurture programs in Glasgow. Glasgow introduced nurture schools and nurture classes within schools to try and support children who maybe weren't getting some of that nurture at home, having those attachments, getting that sense of security. You can't learn if you feel unsafe and anxious. So you have to learn to feel safe in an environment. And if you haven't had the experience of safety in your first couple of years, you have to learn those skills. So they put nurture groups into schools to help with that. And so these children learned how to feel safe in an environment. And that's a good thing because it can make school a safe place for them. However, if at the weekend they're going home into a very unsafe environment and there's lots of things going on and there's maybe disruption in the house and maybe they're ending up at a police station at the weekend while something else is going on, you can't expect them just to switch back on again on Monday when they come back in. Giving them the skills to function within a context without dealing with the other context they're in is only half the battle. So while we can continue always to work with the individual and to try and support them and help them learn and help them feel safe, we also have a responsibility to work at a societal level and make sure that we're trying to address things like poverty, like um, addiction, all of the things that may be structured for a child and within their, their circumstances. I was going to ask you, we're going to talk about, um, on the majority of the podcast, we're going to talk about more able uh, children. And I, and I was kind of keen to get the terminology right in a sense because uh, during my time in teaching um, you know your everyday uh, person on the street might say you know we're talking about intelligent or bright children or in a school context they were often called when I, um, I was teaching uh, gifted or talented or high attaining is there a, a is there some words we should be using to describe the kind of students you tend to work in or you focused in a lot of your research um, there's no right or wrong answer I guess but how do you tend to refer to what I would say is perhaps the, the more able, the high attaining pupils. So there's a lot of debate within the literature. So when we're talking about these young people, there's a lot of debate in the literature about how we define them. And it depends what country you're in, what language you use. So, for example, in the States, they talk a lot about gifted and talented. And there they're talking about the top 5%, the top 1%. And they're talking about it in terms of it's widened out in previous times. We used to be concentrating very much on academic achievement, and that's broadened out. Some countries differentiate between gifts and talents, so they think of gifts as being the highest academic ability and talents as being sports, music, all of those kind of things. Um, for example, Scotland, where I've worked for a long time up till recently, they talk about highly able because they have it as more, they have anxieties about the terms gifted and talented because it's almost something that's been given to you that you should be grateful for. And that worries them and has connotations for them. So instead they use the terms highly able but again, highly able is problematic because you could be lowly able, you know, so it's asking you to go on a continuum. So for me, language is always going to be, there isn't a perfect definition around it. And language is always going to be complex. But for me, it's about children who are working in advance of where we think they would be at that stage in development and will need some support from us. So just if you are 10 and you can't read yet, you need support from us because you're doing something that other children your age are, or you can't do something other children your age can do. 
Equally, if you're five and you're reading like a 12 year old, you need our support and attention because you're doing something that other children your age can't do. And you need to have somebody making sure you can negotiate those waters. So I think a lot of people assume with highly able that they're already advantaged. We don't need to deal with them because what's the problem? They can do all these things, but they forget how challenging it can be to be at odds with your peers, to feel like the odd one out, to feel like you don't fit, to feel like nobody understands you, to feel like teachers don't recognize your strengths, to feel like your parents think you were adopted at the hospital because you don't fit with the rest of your family can all be very disconcerting. Young people often want to fit in with their peers. So there's a lot of things around the social and emotional too. And you have a lot of what we would call um, underachievers, highly able underachievers, where they're actually, they could do more than they, they're demonstrating, but they don't want to be the, the nerd, the geek of the class. So they're, they're pretending they can't do what they can do, or they are just being isolated from the class because they feel they have no peers. So there's a lot of challenges around there. So does it, um, when you're thinking about, I was thinking about the, uh, you're talking about the, the peer group in a sense, that if you've got a student that maybe is in the top 5% by their, I guess, the IQ test or their maths test or the English comprehension, is there, is there more of a challenge in different socioeconomic environments in terms of um, negativity towards, in a sense, you're talking about um, being being labelled, if that's not the right word, but as in the, the, the child being told that they are in this particular group, so to speak. Um, it might have some advantages and some disadvantages. Have you seen where it's been particularly advantageous or disadvantage, if there's a disadvantage in any, any particular cases? Well, I think it's been interesting. In the time that I've worked in this area, I've had so many different experiences that have surprised me in some ways. And there's such an assumption about if you're highly able, often we'll have parents contact us and say, my child's highly able, I think we're going to like sell a kidney and send them to private school because we think there they'll get what they need because it's a specialist school and it's small numbers and it's all the kind of things. Or we're trying to move them out of this school because it's in this area. And what I would say is it's never as easy as that. You know, it's never just simple and, and straight cut. So I have been in schools in area of deprivation that are doing amazing things for their highly able kids and really good at identifying and really good at thinking about across the board. Um, what they should do and I've also been in private schools who said to me no we don't do anything for the highly able because if we do something specialized for that child then we'll have all the other parents going in but I'm paying fees too why isn't my child getting that so we try to be even more equivalent in and you're like but you're not really because it's not about making sure that everybody gets what they need isn't about giving everybody the same it's about giving people what they need so if you're truly trying to be equitable to, to children, you have to go up where their needs are, because if you give them all the same thing, you're not meeting most of their needs because they don't need the same thing. So I would say the presumption that in particular areas of social deprivation, that they're not going to get what they need or that in areas of high um, income, they're going to get what they need would be one that we need to walk away from. You always need to reflect and think beyond that. And, you know, where I've been in schools where they said, you know, why are you here? We're this kind of area. We don't have those kind of kids. And I was like, these kind of kids are everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. And I've yet to go into a school where we haven't found and identified kids because it's about the challenge that they're at at those stages in time. So it really is about not having pre-assumptions about what a school is going to be like or pre-assumptions about what a child is going to be like or pre-assumptions about how much you can help. And is there, um, when you think about, uh, you know, those top 5%, let's call them, um, and you're thinking about different uh, subjects, um, of course, there's going to be children who are going to be, if you like, more gifted in some areas than others. Is it, 
easier, would you say, to um, help somebody who is maybe, say, gifted at mathematics than is languages or English or um, any, you know, any of the other subjects? Have you found that there are, there are fewer challenges in some subjects? And it seems like there are fewer challenges. If you're so good at maths, you just give them hard, you know, what we perceive to be harder maths. What, what, any thoughts on that? Well, I think in terms of some of the subjects, it's easier because there's more resources available and there's more. So, for example, mathematics and science, there is more kind of clubs and fun things to do in relation to that. If you're a gifted, even if you're a gifted creative writer, there's more spaces to send them. There's more resources to engage in them. But if you have young people who are good in or really talented in history or you have a young child, for example, one of the areas that can be really complex is if you are, because you're rarely one thing, and that's kind of why I don't like the gifted and talented or the, the kind of inclusion, because it's saying you're this, so therefore you can't be all of these other things. Very often you can be both gifted and talented. You can just be an all-rounder. You can be great academically and have athletic ability. So I don't like that diversion out of them. And equally, if we look at young children, you can have one of the hardest to identify is gifted kids who are dyslexic because they mask each other because they're often really good at masking their dyslexia, but their dyslexia also is masking just how good they are. Because so much of our curriculum is based around writing. So much of our curriculum is based around demonstrating through writing how good you are at things. So I would say, yes, there are subject, some subject areas that are easier once you have identified to make sure that there is resources there. It still requires some creativity. Because even if you have, like one of the things you think about, you can't just take... Um, essentially a 12 year old and put them in university with first year university students just because they can do those mathematics the mathematics are there and available but you have to think about the context in which they're going into the people that they will be around their social and emotional development so it's still complex no matter even if you have the resources but it is particularly conflict complex if you're gifted in an area that's maybe not as easy to get at the resources um, and then also thinking about it, it can be it can be challenging if, for example, you're in the one of the islands and highlands in Scotland where there's geographically very limited population and you may be in a composite school where there is no other gifted and talented child in that area with you. So you can feel very at odds. So I don't think it's necessarily that it's simpler in some now. There's more resources in some subjects. But for me, it's always been complex when you're dealing with it. It all com always comes down to the individual child and their context and making sure you have what they need. And how often I'm interested, when I, when I saw you, you um, speak earlier in the year, you talked about um, some gifted children, um, maybe, let's just say maths for argument's sake, was, was good at maths, um, but wasn't interested, wasn't interested in maths. I mean, how often does that happen? Is it like, is it one in 10 times? Because actually most people say, or if perception is, if you're, if you're better than the average of your peer group, you feel like you like that thing, whatever it might be, tennis, football, you know, math, science. Um, what's your experience of that? Because I know you talked about in, in, in the lecture I saw you in about children and the challenge of having gifted children, but children that are maybe not interested in what you think they should be interested in. So just to kind of give a context of the, the example that I was talking about in that talk was we were running a specialist maths class on a Saturday and a young boy had come to the class and it had been a... It'd been a really engaging, the woman that was leading it is very creative, very innovative. So it was all through play. It was a very full day. It wasn't them sitting down doing sheets and sheets of maths. They'd been playing all day. It was, it was a lot of fun and there'd been a lot of laughter in the room. But that child's grandfather had been there and came up to the end and I said, how was your day? And he was like, well, I'm good at maths, but I don't know why I have to come on a Saturday and do them. I'd rather be doing something else. And his grandfather was saying, oh, you know, but this is great. 
And he's like, but then, but you know, I want to be a singer and I'm going to be a pop star. So, you know, I think it's, you know, lots of things we think we make assumptions about what people should do and what children should do. And that's not just when they're highly able. We think, oh, you know, you're doing well at this or you have a propensity to this or your, your dad was a teacher and you should be a teacher. There's all kinds of reasons why we make assumptions. But I think it is, in terms of percentages, I do think it's, it's more unusual that somebody who has a particular advantage in an area or a particular ability in an area doesn't see that as a pathway through. But I don't always feel like they're making that choice. Sometimes it feels like that choice is being made for them. And usually if they, because so many people have said that's the pathway you're going to go. And some people have a real passion for a subject. And that's why they're highly able in it, because they're so engaged in it that they're going to pursue it as much as they can. But it's a smaller proportion that really don't want to pursue their talents, but they're out there. And then, of course, you have gifted kids or highly able kids who are just all-rounders. They're so able in every area, they could literally touch anything and they're able to do it. And for them, that can be paralyzing because they don't then know what they should do because they could do anything. And for those kids, you'll often find them going to university and they will drop out of first year on something, drop out of second year on something else, try a career in this one. And there may be people who society would deem as not being successful because they muddled their way through life doing bits and bobs. Um, but it's for them because they can't commit to anything because they're good at everything. Yeah, it's a kind of uh, yeah the uh, the illusion of choice and the difficulties you have when you've got too many op- too many options. And often these kids are are pretty perfectionist about what they're doing because so much of their identity has been tied into their ability because they've been told time and time again you're good at this that they're scared of putting themselves forward and into those contexts because they don't want their identity challenged. They don't want to not be good at anything anymore. So often they'll back away from doing the thing or try and just do good enough rather than put themselves in risky situations. By risky, I don't mean risky safety, but risky as in terms of their identity because they're so afraid that their identity will get broken by not succeeding at something. And we all have to learn that, you know, you don't succeed at everything all of the time, no matter how great you are. So... We have to learn it's okay to fail and gifted kids definitely have to learn it's okay to fail because that's how we learn to get back up again. And that's what this leads nicely on to my next question because I wanted to ask you about uh, Carol Dweck, the, you know, the growth mindset um, and this kind of effect on more able students because uh, often it should be applied equally to all, all students. But when you're labelled you know, gifted, talented, more able, high attaining, um, is it difficult? Is it just children find it harder to have a growth mindset and they get into this perfectionist mindset where they've got everything right? Um, and they because they haven't had so many barriers, perhaps they um, I think I read somebody they spend uh, le- uh, fewer minutes on more hard, more difficult problems because they want to they want to be successful. Whereas actually uh, children who are more used to failing, so to speak, will, will spend a bit longer on those problems because it's more maybe perhaps more comfortable for them, I guess. Any thoughts on that? So it's funny, every time I'm in a, in a taxi and a taxi driver asks me what I am and I say I'm a psychologist, they always say, well, that's just common sense, isn't it? And I'm a better psychologist than you'll ever be. And to a degree, when Carl's work came out talking about the growth and the fixed mindset, there was a lot of, well, well, that makes, that sounds like it makes sense. If we feed back to children and we encourage and encourage them to think about the process, not about their ability, then they're going to have more of a growth mindset, which allows them to feel autonomy on their own actions. Whereas if we feed back to them, you are excellent, you're intelligent, that will encourage a fixed mindset where it's all about the fixed ability, innateness of their ability, and that won't encourage them to have this kind of um, engagement with their own learning. It's also in terms of thinking about growth and fixed mindsets, 
in terms of the role of the educator, it's much more encouraging and powerful to think of growth mindsets because you feel you can have a role, whereas when the fixed mindset and the innateness of it, then it's hard to see what your role is. Now, there's been a lot of contention about the growth mindset research and whether it, it stands up to replication and all those kind of things. From my perspective, there's interesting work in there. And I think there's interesting aspects about how children behave in those contexts when they're given different kinds of feedback. So I think, yes, we definitely have to think about how we're communicating with children, what we talk to them about is value. I think being labeled as gifted it has is a double-edged sword or highly able or whatever you want to call it. It's a double-edged sword because in one sense, you get to say, like when you get any label, I know who I am and that explains me. And now I know how to, I need other people in this group. I also, for parents, it often is a thing I can now go to the school and say, this is what my child needs and it's legitimate. I'm not just being a tiger mom or I'm not just being, you know, pushy parent. This is actually legitimate. Labels help in that way because they help us figure out who we are, but also to get the things that we need. But the other side of that is they do put pressure on us. So when somebody is labeled as highly able, then they're expected to perform at all times in those ways. And you'll often see that reaction in schools. So sometimes it'll be like, but I thought you were, I thought you were supposed to be gifted. And so, you know, the thing about it is children are still children. So even if you are a gifted mathematician at seven, you're still going to throw the odd tantrums. You know, you're still going to behave like a seven-year-old. So it's about the burden of that label too. And I think it really is important how we communicate um behaviors with kids but also achievements with kids and it was so funny because i was writing actually something about growth mindset at one stage writing all about thinking about it and critiquing it and all this and my nephew at the time phoned and said that he'd done really well in exams and i very instinctively on the phone responded to him and said oh that's so great you're so clever and then i was like no you're not clever you worked really hard and i could feel myself literally on the phone because it's so instinctive some of the stuff we do through culture and communication but we really need to think about that because we have to help children understand that it's the process of working and not just something that's innate to them one of the most challenging things in higher education particularly is when children come up and they feel there's a need for a right answer and there isn't right answers in once you get to higher education per se there's like how you make arguments or how you demonstrate your work or even in mathematics and things so that's the demonstration of your work rather than whether you get to the right answer but they feel like they have to be pigeonholed into getting the a grade and what's the, that for it and we need to start moving away from that make sure we're giving the feedback about the process and finding your way and the failures help you learn all of those kind of things are really important particularly with highly able so they, they don't get that protective perfectionist thing going on because our identity is so tied into what their ability is our ability is just one small part of who we are in a sense i was thinking um about you know that, that term talented and um my my first go-to kind of subject i think about is i think about the, my music or sport or something like that but i think that Actually, if that person is talented at that, okay, they may have slight natural ability, but could you be amazing uh, piano player if you you never practice, you know, you never you know use the piano? I mean, it's, it's in a possibility in a sense that you may well be talented at piano, but if you never did it, there's no way you're going to maintain that particular skill for any yeah. level of time. I would say. Would you agree? Yeah, no, and that's you know when people say gifts and talents are innate, you're like, yes, but you're never going to know what some of because there is a level of genetic predisposition, but you're never going to know that you're genetically predisposed to doing something if you're not exposed to that area of your life. So there is always going to be an environmental effect. 
Um, I keep my mum that I would have been a great prima ballerina only she never bought me to ballet reasons lessons. Now I don't have the, the figure or the stature to be a ballerina, but I can blame mum instead, you know, because I never had that exposure. So it is always about the environment plus what we're bringing to the table ourselves and also our personal characteristics because it's kind of like that kid, he wanted to be a pop star. He didn't, you know, his enthusiasm, his motivation, it didn't matter what ability he had in an area, your motivation is going to play a huge role in how much you engage in something as well as your ability. Yeah, definitely. Uh, now, you're going to bear with me now, Neve. I'm going to ask you a technical question and I, I want to get it right. So uh, I might have to read this slowly. So just bear with me. So I was going to ask you this. So um, so in your research, you um, you say that advancing our understanding of neurobiological issues such as neuroplasticity, synaptic pruning and sensitive periods might inform policy and practice uh, in this particular area. So um, I wanted to ask what do these terms mean and how might they relate to uh, educational progress of students in school? If that question isn't too long. Okay, I'm going to try and break that question down. Yes, please do, please component do. Parts. So fundamentally, the point, I, I think I know the chapter that you're talking about where I wrote that. Fundamentally, the point I'm trying to make is the importance of policy and legislation being evidence-based. Yeah. And so that's fundamentally the point that I'm trying to make in that chapter, that we can't just keep having educational policy or we can't keep having knee-jerk reactions to things like PISA results where we go, oh, we're not doing well in this, so we're suddenly going to not teach English anymore. You're like going, we have to, education, it's so important, and we have so many young people's lives in our hands, we have to be doing it from an education-based position. And then the second part of the argument in that chapter is about just how much information we now have in neuroscience and in psychology that could help us with that evidence base. Now, one of the complications in that is the distance between neuroscientific findings and what's happening in a classroom. And sometimes when we're looking at those, they get, in an effort to make them applicable in the classroom, they get diluted and simplified. So you end up with kind of brain myths and neuro myths that are going around where teachers think that they're doing something that's evidence-based, but actually it's so distant from what actually the neuroscientists did that it falls apart in that translation. So one of the things, I was just at a conference last week arguing about this or arguing for this, the need to have something in the middle that helps the neuroscientists understand how to communicate the findings in a way that can be absorbed, palatable, um, appropriate, feasible for those on the ground, but that doesn't lose the meaning of what is actually there. Um, and there's a nice field now of neuroscience and education coming together and you have people working in that area. There's some interesting work being done around there. But neuroplasticity is one of the rock stars of development. It's the idea that if something happens, that we are susceptible to change, that change can happen. And it's the brain is capable of change, particularly capable of change at particular periods, at sensitive periods. So again, when we were talking at the pre-fives, there's another spurt of growth during adolescence where a lot of stuff goes on at the brain. And again, if we know and understand what's happening in the brain in these areas, then our educational policy can be better. So for example, if you think about Sarah Blake Murrow's work on adolescence in the teenage brain, hugely important work, hugely important to understanding what's going on in the teenage brain at those periods of time. And that, for example, lots of people think, you know, you have lots of um, rhetoric around teenagers being lazy and sleeping a lot. Yes, they actually do need to sleep a lot at that stage because there's so much going on in their brain at that time. And we do need to think about if we were really basing education on neuroscientific evidence or on kind of evidence we have out there, we would have teenagers start school later in the day. 
because we know what about their sleep patterns, things like that. So that's what the kind of argument I'm trying to get in that. The more that we can actually take the evidence, but we don't start the school later in the day because it doesn't sit with work patterns, for example. So our educational system is sometimes functional to what society needs rather than pedagogically based on what the evidence tells us would be best for children at different stages of development. But we do know that we need to make better connections between what the evidence is in psychology and neuroscience and education and then try and feed into policy. What age should children start school? When are they ready for it? And again, there's a large debate within that and a large debate about when their brains are ready for different kinds of learning. For me, it's a false uh, debate around that you should only play up to age six, eight, and then, then you're ready for learning. Because for me, that defies what early education is about. There's lots of learning that goes on through play in these early settings. So it's not about saying this is a play stage and this is a learning stage. It's about acknowledging what the different kinds of learning and the different way learning happens at these ages and having that informed by evidence. That was a very long answer. I hope that wasn't too much. Well, it was, uh, it was a very long question, Neve. Uh, so that's, that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, I was thinking when you were talking as well about um, it, is so, it is so complex and you kind of answered the question I was going to ask in terms of, I was going to ask to talk to you about my, uh, my teenage son who, you know, he, himself, because he... Um, likes to find evidence uh, to why he should be doing things or not doing things and, and, and said, you know, he should be starting school at 10 o'clock, et cetera. And it is that kind of, as you say, the society, the way that society is structured in the sense that it's, it's although it might be the best thing, it's not the practical thing you could argue, I suppose, um, which makes it makes it difficult. Um, and that's why I, I'm suspecting it probably won't change. I don't know. But um, I was th also thinking about kind of teachers, and you know, that, that, um, the messaging from you know neuropsychology and psychologists to to teachers and thinking about um, you know messages being um, not clear not clearly being passed down to a certain extent. Is there anything you you, you tend to see a lot of teachers um, doing not necessarily we say wrongly is is the wrong thing, but do you think there's common things that teachers tend to do if they think they've got like someone who is more able or high attaining in their class that they shouldn't be doing, or are they just doing the I'm sure they are uh, doing the best they can with the, obviously the time they've got. Is there anything you think they tend to make any any misjudgments on at all? Well, I'm very conscious here that the last time I did a podcast, it somehow found its way to my family where I talked about my family and I've been hearing all about it since. So I'm very conscious here not to be seen to be slagging off teachers in any way or I will have no home to go to. But a, what I would say is I have rarely met anyone in education who isn't in education because it's what they care about and want to do the best. So I would always say that the best of intentions are generally there. And even when people take on neuroscience evidence and I come in and I kind of go, oh, my God, that's not actual, you know, that's not actual evidence based. They have they're not doing that. They they think that they're dealing with evidence based because that's what it's been sold to them by. And it's, you know, kind of the snake oil thing where somebody comes in with an amazing package, tells them that all the neuroscientific evidence behind it is amazing and they, it's this great thing for their kids. So they're accepting that in some ways because we've busy lives and we accept what we're told. So I, I have no judgment there in relation to that. I suppose the one thing that the main stereotype, which isn't really about the evidence per se, the main stereotype that I would say I encounter most in education is that these kids will be okay. Um, and often that... One of the main stereotypes who go in and say, Neve, but I have all of these kids who can't do this stuff and who are suffering and they need my help and you want to take my way, my help away and my time from these kids who'll be fine. And like they're already advantaged. They're going to get their the head of the class, they're going to get all the grades, they're going to go to university, they don't need me. And you're like going, you just don't see the ways they need you because they need you in different ways. So I think the key stereotype would be around these kids not needing help because 
they often do need help and need help in different ways. And you'll see a lot of them dropping out because they become disenfranchised with education because they're just they're just bored the whole time. They're just and listen, this is not to be unsympathetic. Teachers are in large classrooms with too much to do and not enough resources to do it. So I do think this is a societal issue and this isn't just about gifted kids, but it's a societal issue about how much we value education and how much we value the teachers within those contexts and where we want to keep classroom sizes and how well we want resource we want classrooms to be. Because again, when we go back to what we we're just talking about policy and the age for starting school, it is much later in some of like, for example, Scandinavian countries because their taxes are higher and they're willing to invest in early education. It's lower in the UK, for example, and in Ireland because the financing of starting school later would have such huge implications for a government and where early education would come out when you have parents that need to be in the workforce. It's a very complicated picture. That doesn't mean we shouldn't keep pushing for it. So when you're saying that, you know, these things shouldn't change, it doesn't mean, I, I don't think I would be doing my job unless I was still pushing for change, even if I feel it's a brick wall and my head hurts banging against it. We should still keep pushing against it. Because change does happen, change does happen. And of things that in my lifetime I thought would never happen, if they have come about, it's just taken a long time. So thinking about, it's, it's kind of, um, that answers maybe think about something else in terms of um, like the funding question, I guess. And um, I'm kind of doing it as this podcast, podcast from England where in a university you've been paid for you know, a big portion of your fees, fees these days. Um, where do you think government funding should be funneled in a sense? Do you think we should be spending more on that 0 to 7 peer, uh, age group or should we be putting more funding into higher education in terms of benefiting society as a whole? Which, if you had a choice, which one you, you would fund, if you couldn't fund both, would you go for the young, younger, um, younger students or would you actually think, oh, actually, we need to make sure that... Um, uh, the higher education is supported and obviously you might be biased I think if you're in higher, higher education but um, any thoughts on that and there's no wrong or right answer of course. Yeah I suppose one of the things when I go into schools and teachers say to me but I need to think about you know these kids with these special needs and I can't think about yours I'm like education shouldn't be a lifeboat it shouldn't be about just how many people you can fit in at this stage education should be open and accessible to all so I am I would really, really struggle to answer the question of which of those I would choose. I would say that we need to have a better funded system that supports education right through the lifespan for whatever that is for everybody. And I don't believe everybody should go to university. I believe you shouldn't be excluded from university because of financial issues. If you want to go on a completely different path than university is not for you, then you get no complaint from me. And if you want to go travel the world, you want to set up a yoga retreat, you want to do whatever you do, then that's your joy and that's your passion. But nobody should feel they're excluded from it because of financial reasons. Or even because, you know, we were just, I was just talking about it the other day with a colleague when you came to university and because I was on a funded place, I didn't end, end university with huge amounts of debt. Whereas even now, if you took student loans and that, the debt that you're accumulating by the time you get out will be a hole that you may never dig yourself out of again. So it's even when there's funding things there, it's about what those funding things are. I do think that at the very minimum, we need to make sure that primary and secondary education is available and exclusive to all. And that needs to consider, and I feel very strongly about that, students who are not in education, not in formal education. There are lots of reasons why some children are excluded from school or are non-attenders or school refusers. And we need to just not go, well, we're getting 70% of them, we're doing okay. And those people can all just go off in their corner. We need to think about what some non-formal education looks like up to the age of 18 so that at least everyone has something to go forward with. 
um, and I don't think we do very well at that. We we have very traditional structures in in education, and we have a very diverse society. Of course, and I was thinking that when you've when you obviously your 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 career has been folk focused um, a lot of on um, you know gifted talents are more more able to have you want to, to talk about it. Is there any evidence that those those types of students go on to in brackets, uh, sorry, in inverted commas, um, uh, happier lives, or are they more successful? Uh, has there been any studies linked to um, how, how, how their life, lives play out later on? So, yeah, two interesting points in that. The first one is that it's why I have such a problem with the, what's called the eminence perspective, um, which is the people that only focus on the kind of top one, five percent. And the argument for focusing on them is because they're going to be our great leaders, our great politicians, our great and you're like, good, there's lots of very highly able people who are criminals. There's lots of very highly able people. You know, the assumption that anyone who's highly able is going to go on to one of those roles, and that's why we should invest in them, I have problems with. A, because it's the assumption that they're all going to do good, and B, it's the assumption that that's the only reason we're interested in. Not because we should support all children, but because what they'll do for us as a society. I don't think we should be developing and supporting young children because they're going to care for us in our care homes. I think we should be developing and supporting them because that's what we should do as a society. So there's that. But then to answer your other question, there's, there is work along that line. So Joan Freeman um, in the UK did a very important study. Oh God, and I can't dig the, he- the year out of my head now, but uh, yeah, so she had a gifted kid. She wrote a book called Gifted Kids Grown Up and then she, she followed them through. So it was one of the first psychologists one of the first books that looked longitudinally at these kids um, and looked and kind of followed their pathways. And she was one of the first to really kind of challenge, will they all end up in successful lives um, because they have these gifts and talents? And she found a huge variety within that and a huge variety of what, and it also asked questions about what would we define successful? So say, for example, you were a female and you were highly talented in maths and physics, but you decided to be a stay-at-home mom. Would we as a society think then you had not fulfilled your ambitions, but you were completely, these were your choices and this is what you decided to do in your ambition. Would we then make a judgment on that? That For that person, their life was hugely successful. So because they'd made choices for them. So it's how we define success. But then she also, she was one of the first people that demonstrated those young people who couldn't make a decision and ended up not going on to higher education, not having careers, being unemployed. And, and having social and emotional challenges because the perfectionism, all of that stopped them from living the life that they might have otherwise had. So there is longitudinal work out there that demonstrates the points that we're making. Joan was some of the first, but there's now been a lot more work in that area. There's also amazing work by um, like Tracy Cross in the States. And Tracy does work around um, perfectionism and suicide within gifted kids. And just because the level of pressures they feel and that, that works hard to read but it also demonstrates these kids don't succeed all on their own definitely um this podcast is um linked to science education and many science teachers listen to it um in terms of science teachers and, and what they should be doing in terms of supporting um high attaining children is there, is there certain things that you think um they, sh- they should definitely be considering if they've got one in their class this year um obviously some of it is resourcing of course but is there any i suppose is there kind of uh, any kind of uh, things you could do if you had oodles of money and those if you didn't have you know maybe you had 10 pounds to spend is, is there any things you should be doing in that science classroom thing to try and really help those students 
Well, I suppose one of the things I would say is that it's much easier to work on it as a school position rather than an individual teacher position. Because when you think of it as a school position, you have way more resources. And sometimes when we go into schools, they'll say, oh, we have this kid who's 12 year old that can do a 15 year old's maths. And you're like, what do we do with them? And you're like, well, you have worked for 15 year olds and you could you know, go do cross school stuff. And you could have them doing, for example, um, getting them away from age and stage and having them outside age peers. Now you do need to manage that because if you're 15 and you're going up to work with 18 year olds, that's an issue for you in terms of how you socially and emotionally manage it. But if you're an 18 year old and there's a 15 year old coming in or a 12 year old coming in who can do everything that you can do and better, that's also quite challenging for you. So you do need to manage the social and emotional around it. But there is opportunities within schools to think outside your class, your group, your year, and to think about how you can collaborate because you're unlikely to be the only science teacher, but how you could do it. I think one of the very important things, and we do this an awful lot as continuing professional development with teachers, when you're planning curriculum, make sure you're not putting ceilings in those curriculum. So how would somebody be able to demonstrate to you that they were able in a particular area? So what have you built into? It's not about necessarily um, having writing different lessons for everyone, but how have you written a lesson so that there's an opportunity for somebody to shine within that lesson? How would they show you? Because the thing about it is, one of the things about development is we all have peaks and troughs. So it could be that you enter school and you're doing okay and nobody you've gone okay in your grades and all the rest of it. So you're just coming across as an average student. And then everyone thinks you're an average student, so you only ever get average work. But yet if somebody gives you an opportunity to show that actually in this area, a light bulb has gone on for me and now I can do way better than I thought I could. Well, where's those light bulb moments? So we need to be really careful of not just teaching to the middle. We need to make sure, and I know this is the challenge of teaching, it's the challenge of teaching particularly in 300 in the first year of psychology, but making sure the material is accessible for those that are struggling, is there in the middle for those that need it in the middle, but there are opportunities to be stretched if this is the thing that you're passionate about. And whether that's passionate as in science across all the five years of secondary school or whatever it is, or whether you just found your topic and you need challenge in that topic. We had a guy who was fascinated by space absolutely fascinated by space and he came to one of our um in when we were doing sessions and we had somebody from our astrophysicists who were coming in talking and others they were talking about the moon landing whether the moon landing had actually happened and this guy could have talked to the professor for hours on end because he knew so much information and he in that particular class needed a challenge and it's about where do we give those chances where do we give them and that's not necessarily costing you money. It's thinking about curriculum planning. Do you think um, often when I was teaching, Bloom's taxonomy was always mentioned again and again and again. And I guess it is quite old these these days, but is, is, is there still a lot of um, a value in Bloom's taxonomy and thinking about those, those higher level synthesis and evaluative techniques as you, as you go up? Is that a good good way of thinking of things? I think anything that allows you to look critical at, critically at your planning is a useful tool. So Blooms, if that works for you and helps you think about where's the critical thinking in this, how have I not made it a closed question, how have I given an opportunity to synthesize ideas, because that's hugely important. Hugely important to be able to pull across things rather than just know the thing. Um, so if that helps you, but it really is about how would somebody show me that they really were top at this. So you can get 100 out of 100, but how, you know, so how would you show that extra level of stretch? Where is the space for it? And how have I not closed down the activity? 
And uh, a kind of practical question, because we're almost at the end of our time, was I was going to say, if you think you have got a child that is perhaps gifted, talented, more able, um, what are the where are the places you should perhaps go online? I know you were based in Scotland. You're now in Ireland. I'm talking to you, talking to you from England. Um, but is there anywhere other internationally they should be going to or somewhere based in the UK that is a good place to start if you think that uh, maybe you should be investigating whether, you, whether your, your child really is, um, you know, in that top 5%, I guess? Well, I suppose in terms of good starter resources, um, although I've left them, left them now, I still would uh, highly rate the resources. The Scottish Network for Able Pupils, which has its, its own website, SNAP, the Scottish Network for Able Pupils, based at the University of Glasgow, has some great what we call snapshots, and it's great starter introductions. So I think I have a gifted child or a highly able child. What are the things that I would look for? How to talk to a school if you're a parent? Um, and then it has ones that are what I wish my teachers knew about me from the perspective of gifted kids, which can provide good insight too. It has a basic starter on dyslexia and giftedness, basic starter on music and giftedness. And so nice places as jumping off points. But the main thing I would say is if you think that you're, you have a student who's highly able is talk to the round. Remember that children are growing holistically. So if you think you have um, a child that's highly able, talk to all the people that are involved in that child's life. Just talk to them. Don't forget them in the conversation. Have a conversation with them about what their interests are, where they feel they're at, what kind of challenge works for them. Um, and try and open up the conversation so they feel they have autonomy in it. The more autonomy, because we often do things to kids rather than include them in the kind of planning that we're doing. So the more autonomy they feel, the more motivation they feel, the more engaged they'll be. So make sure they're part of the conversation. Talk to their parents. Their parents know them in a different context, in different, and will have different information than you have in a classroom. So do talk to parents where you can. Try and get some insight about why, how they're like in other situations. Talk to their peers, the other people in the classroom around them. Talk to previous teachers, etc. Don't let any one piece of information be the defining, yes, I think they are, or yes, they, they're not. Let all of the piece of information give you a picture about that child. And in terms of uh, books, I'm thinking about teachers now. I was thinking, is, um, do you know of any, um, maybe say less, less academic books that teachers could, could use for ABLE students? Any good accessible guides you would recommend yeah. that you know of? Yeah, so if it's early years, Margaret Sutherland has done great books on the early years. Um, so, and really, really accessible nursery stuff for anybody who's interested in that. Carrie Winstanley has a great book called Too Clever by Half, which okay. is a really good, accessible, really nice writer and more written more for teachers, etc. Um, and it again kind of challenges some of the myths and gives you some good critical thinking about what you could be doing in your classroom. Um, what else would I read? I would read Joan Freeman's Gifted Kids Grown Up. That because it's a nice um, illustration. It is more. Um, it's more like a biography of these kids, and so it's it's an engaging read to think about how they can end up in different pathways. I think those are the three good starters for ten for me. That's good. That sounds like it's a good place to start. And my final question is um, perhaps a stereotypical kind of question um, I might ask any psychologist, which is uh, thinking about um, our lives generally. And a bigger question about happiness. And there's lots been written about happiness over the past, uh, well, probably the past hundred years, but definitely in the past ten years, there's been lots, lots in the media about it. Um, uh, you seem to be a very positive person. Are there any things that you do, and I'm going to say three, uh, that you do every week to make sure you have a good week if you can? Any things that you personally do to make your you, yourself on an even keel and that you know we should prioritise as maybe teachers or, or parents? Uh, any thoughts on that? 
So, you know, it's a funny thing, but the pandemic, I think for, for me and for lots of people, made me reflect on my life and where my life was at and what brought me happiness and what I wanted my life to do. And that's led to quite a big career change for me and what, what I wanted to do. In terms of the things that makes me happy, one thing the pandemic also really made me focus on is finding those things and really holding on to them because the challenges were huge and significant. And, it, you know, it wasn't such a thing that you're like, the workload was enormous, the pressures were enormous, the isolation was enormous, and staying positive within those waves of negativity was a really hard thing to do. So one of the things that I, I do really believe in is that you have to stop and when something is good to really reflect on it and accept that that's good and celebrate it for what it is, whatever that is, big or small. So, you know, it used to be where you're trying to get into either negative patterns of thought, I would be saying, or, you know, these are all really hard. So every day, every single day, what went right? What, you know, what was the good thing? Try and hang on to that, even if it's the smallest thing. And for some days it's, I finally got to drink a full cup of tea rather than eight cold cups because I've been so happy and so busy. But I don't think it's as simple as saying that we stay happy by going for a run or things like that. I think there are pressures on us that are real, very real. And sometimes it's about being happy is about maybe making some big life changes and, and being okay about that. Um, there's a, a great saying, um, if you're not happy, you're not a tree, move. You know, So sometimes rather than staying in the cycle of unhappiness, think about what you've the power to change what you actually have the power to change. And sometimes that can mean moving physically, make, it can mean changing jobs, it can mean saying no to things. Saying no more can make you happy because you know uh, it gives you more space than that. But what are, a long way around to what are the things I do? I do try and, and appreciate the joy more, I really do. I really try and think about, even if it's little things, that I've been lucky to have those and it's a good thing. I do run and it keeps me sane. It really does keep me sane. Um, it doesn't solve the words and the problems, but it stops me being tied to my desk all of the time. It actually gets me out in the fresh air. It lets me see a bit of beauty. I can't. I don't think it would work for me if I just ran in a treadmill. It's not about exercise. It's not just exercise and the hormones you get from exercise. I need to be outside. I need to be near those kind of things. And then also forgiving myself for stuff. I don't get everything right all of the time. Um, and then trying not to beat myself up about that and saying okay, you didn't do that as well as you could have, but what are you going to do better next time rather than just migrating in the in the, the sorrow of, of not getting it right? And then dancing, always dancing. Kitchen dancing, dancing with other people, dancing in the shower, any which way you can do it, music and dancing. That's, nice. That's a nice note to end on, thank you. There's lots of good ideas I think that people take away, not just about uh, supporting more able uh, students, also um, a nice bit of philosophy for life as well. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, Neve. Very welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, another pod done and dusted. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Professor Stack and her thoughts on higher attaining learners. Who will be on the podcast next? Well, perhaps you can help with that. We're always looking for new guests, so if you know someone involved in science education who you'd like to hear from, drop me a line at andy.woods at pearson.com and we'll get the conversation started. That's all for now. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next one.